1: with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the IT strategy for the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, OPM? How is it modernizing its IT systems and infrastructure? And what is OPM doing to secure its IT systems? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Guy Carvalho. Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Office of Personal Management. So, Guy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you.
0: Oh, thank you very much. Glad to be here.
1: So, before we delve into specific initiatives, Guy, I was hoping you'd give us an overview of the history and evolving mission of the Office of Personal Management, OPM.
0: Oh, sure. It, it uh, actually had it starts back in the old Civil Service Commission, which uh, some of the older federal employees will remember. That used to be your... Your personnel clearance organization, uh, then it was revamped into the Office of Personnel Management. Again, we are the federal government's HR resource, we set the HR policies. For the federal government, um, we set rules and earlier uh, things like uh, should we close the government due to a snowstorm. Uh, those are all things that people reach a- OPM every day. And then we are the source of all federal retirement. So all federal employees, one way or another, eventually will deal with OPM, even if they ended up being hired in a different way when they retire. We uh, support all the federal retirees.
1: That's wonderful. So I want to know about your office. You're the chief information officer of OPM, and your office is the office of chief information Officer. So what does your office do? How is it organized? And how does it support the overall mission of OPM?
0: Uh, sure. It's uh, – yeah. Basically, it boils down to information technology, but uh, I've been in this industry for a long time. There are all different ways to skin that cat. One thing that we've done, uh, and I've been CIO for a little over about 15 months, is the agency released its first strategic plan for OPM as an agency uh, last year. And then we were working on a draft version of that, and I had my team develop an IT strategic plan to go in alignment with that to show Here's where the agency's going. Here's how technology will help us get there. So the two documents together really give a roadmap of where OPM is headed. Uh, OPM's had a rough time over the last few years. There was an attempt to abolish it a few years ago that uh, did not make it through Capitol Hill, yet a lot of good people left. And, you know, people were going, do I want to be at an agency that's being closed? So we've been rebuilding uh, the agency. I've rebuilt the CIO team. I was missing key positions that you expect to have Mm -hmm. in a federal IT shop, such as an enterprise architect, (laughs) such as a chief technology officer. Uh, Those that all just faded away not knowing whether we were going to exist or not. So, uh, my time so far has been spent in the personnel area making sure that I have the right staff. Uh, I've built a team that's based on moving to the cloud and modernization versus supporting the legacy background. Now, of course, we have to do that until we get things migrated to the cloud. But uh, I think about 85% of my leadership team is new that I personally have hired.
1: Mm. Wow! And so that's a good hint. My next question was around what what your role is as CIO. Perhaps you can share with us some of your responsibilities, duties. What's a, a week in the life of the CIO at OPM?
0: Uh, I always ask anybody that wants to be a CIO just follow one for a week before you decide to pursue <laughs> it as your career. Well, uh, again, there are there are are federal rules and laws that uh, and that the CIO is empowered to run. And then there's the actual reality on top of that. Uh, basically, I am responsible for all, all technology at the Office of Personnel Management, the systems supporting what we talked about earlier, the retirees, current federal employees, how you apply for a job with USA Jobs. All of that is under my t- staff's uh, management and control. Uh, everything from the laptop in front of somebody, to our phone system, to our clouds that we're uh, rapidly moving to, uh, all of those I'm responsible for. And then there's specific rules from the federal government, like Fatara that, that says the CIO is empowered to be responsible for all these information systems. And, you know, DHS and OMB have a number of uh, requirements that that I do, but that's not what gets me up in the morning. <laughs> what gets me up in the morning is my excitement of improving the current federal employee's life and the retiree's life in dealing with OPM. We need to be more customer service focused. We need our information systems to be more redundant and easier to use. Mm-hmm. And that's the day job on top of all the legal rules that a CIO does. And my role is uh, what I find that's been very successful as a IT leader throughout my career. I have to set the vision so that the team knows where we're going. I have to sell the vision, not only to my team, but also to the business departments that might have seen a large turnover of CIOs over time and just wondering how long is this one gonna be here? Uh, I am the 10th CIO in the last 12 years at OPM. So, I'm bringing that stability, but I saw I needed to set clear vision, clear strategy. We have our IT strategic plan getting ready to be released to the public to tie to the agency strategic plan. Um, And then I communicate a lot. Uh, I go out and update all the business offices on what we're doing, why we're doing it. We're, We're making major transformations, so everything is changing. And what I find where CIOs fail, is they might make the right technology decision, but they don't worry about the business processes or just the culture change to make that happen. And so I've learned throughout my career that that's more important than doing the technology right.
1: It kind of hints to my next question a little bit around building the office from scratch like you're doing in terms of motivating the transformation keeping legacy but going beyond that, there's got to be some challenges to that. And I was wondering if you could identify some of your management challenges, say the top three, if you will. How have you sought to address those challenges?
0: Uh, Let's definitely talk about personnel because that's always... uh, uh, in the federal government is going to be something where we are we're always struggling to compete with private sector. Mm-hmm. So even if you're doing everything right, it's going to be a management challenge for you. What I've seen uh, executives do over time is when you need to make a major technology shift, you have three paths that you can take. One is you go out and hire contractors. And empower them to do all the change and because you're asking for the current skills that they need or cloud-based skills that your current staff may not have Mm -hmm. and you basically set your present staff aside the other option is you provide training and certification programs for the present staff but you need to invest three to five years for them to pick up the skills of where you need to go before you can even start that migration Uh, I think both of those are wrong. Mm -hmm. So I've come up with Plan C, which is a hybrid where you do both. I bring in outside experts that have the current skills like our migrations to the cloud now that have migrated to the cloud before. And I intermix them with my present staff that knows the legacy systems but hasn't had time to learn the cloud. So I think that's really the only way you can do this successfully. The first two. If you do the first, the contractors might get you there, but when they leave, your legacy staff doesn't know how that how it happened or how to support it, and that ends up being a failure. And usually, you don't have time to wait to get everybody up to speed. And even there, they're just getting training; they don't have that practical experience of moving a major government information system to the cloud. Uh, so I think that's the right way to do it. So you know, that's how I'm handling personnel. The other thing that we've done is we've invested heavily in training my present staff. Uh, we provide unlimited cloud training to everybody on the staff. And uh, also I pay for their cloud certifications. So just in the last few months, I've had about 35 employees get cloud certified of the legacy team mm-hmm. to be able to work with the cloud contractors that are there. Mm-hmm. And then every month, I recognize those uh, accomplishments in our all-hands meetings. Mm-hmm. So that's personnel. Mm-hmm. The other two big ones that everybody will have are money and and, and culture. So on the money side, uh, when OPM went through the merger and the background investigation system was split off from OPM and assigned to DOD, um, That happened pretty quickly and nobody really had time to figure out what are the costs of the impact of that. So I'm still dealing with the costing of, uh, we did transfer system ownership, we did transfer a number of positions, but together the organization's cost for network support and help desk and cybersecurity, all the basic IT functions, with not having that extra income from supporting the background investigation systems, my budgets are very strained and so we're still working out to get that cost. When you do a, a separation like that, especially if it happens quickly, nobody's really taken the time to figure out, well, what would be the cost to OPM as a standalone agency to pay for these things? and. So, while I'd like to put more money towards modernization, I'm, I'm still working to fill some of those holes on the budget side. Mm-hmm. have a very good relationship with OMB and, and Capitol Hill. I'm very transparent with them. Uh, one thing about OPM being in the spotlight is we're one of the few agencies that has external organizations doing extensive studies of what it takes to fix mm-hmm. OPM. Uh, we had a McKinsey study that highlighted how many tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars we needed to modernize what we have. Uh, Last year, NAPA did a very uh, extensive study of OPM, highlighting that the technology was lagging that. So, uh, again, a lot of agencies don't have that extra data, but we have it, and I'm working through our budget process and working with the Hill as much as we can to make sure that we're properly funded. And then the third big challenge is culture. Mm The thing that I always tell my IT staff is, if you are opposed to change, why did you pick technology as a career when it's changing every day? Um, You should have become an accountant or something else. Uh, Wherever I've worked, there's always a core that has fallen in love with the technology or a process, and to modernize that or change that is is difficult. Uh, Again, uh, what I do is communicate, communicate, communicate. Why are we doing this? What are the improvements? How will your job change? Your job isn't going away. Uh, For example, I have some uh, engineers that currently manage my on premise storage. They were one of the first groups that came to me and said, Okay, when we move to the cloud, what happens to my job? I said, Well, first of all, you're going to love it because instead of worrying about running out of storage every day, I'm going to ask you to make sure that we're optimizing and lowering our storage costs every day. In fact, you'll be able to see the results every day. You'll get a report back. You'll see a dashboard that will tell you if you take this data that's not quite used a lot and move it to lower cost, cheaper storage, you're going to save X dollars. I said, so I still need this function, but instead of just trying to shuffle this around to save space, I need you to think about the business impact and help us decide. Because that's to everyone's own devices. Everybody wants, when you move something to the cloud, they want it on the high-speed, most (laughs) expensive storage. Uh, But by watching your data, you can see how best to use that. So it's a culture change across the board. And again, my advice to anyone is you cannot over-communicate a culture change. If you think you're covering it, double your efforts and talk more about it. And then also be an active listener. Hear what people are telling you. Uh, on what their concerns are on so you can address those
1: you can't go wrong with that advice I got to be honest uh, you can never over communicate mm. so you know um, guy what has surprised you most since taking on this role
0: uh, again being a federal employee uh, in four different segments I've, I've, I actually realized that I've now been a federal employee for 20 years but it's taken me a long time to get there because I keep leaving for the private sector um, so I obviously I knew about the Civil Service Commission I knew about OPM wasn't quite familiar with their impact on federal agencies and then coming over after the uh, aborted closing of OPM uh, I knew that I'd be walking into an agency probably with lower morale with a lot of people leaving so uh, I was pleasantly surprised that the level of cooperation and expertise of the employees that were that stayed is much higher than i was expecting and um while i'm moving their cheese every day they're also some of the nicest people i've ever worked with and they're like guy you move my cheese and i don't like it <laughs> i'm like yeah, i'm sorry but but you know we have to do it and here's why and then they're like okay but i still don't like it but i'm, I'm on board um really uh knowledgeable experienced uh people that have a strong passion for the OPM mission and making sure what I started off with. Every federal retiree depends on us. Every new, almost every new hire depends on us to get them on board. And I know just in the time that I came back to the federal government seven years ago, I've probably lost over 15 employees that I'd selected for jobs but because of the federal hiring process taking so long that they ended up getting offered a private sector job faster than I can hire them. So now that I'm in OPM, these are the things I want to address. Uh, we can't be the private sector, but we sure need to close the gap.
1: Thinking about that, and I think you kind of alluded to it, my next question was around your career path. Maybe you can give us a sense of where you came from, how you went back and forth to the private sector and to the federal service. But more importantly, like what, have you, what, what, what experience did you leverage in your private sector uh, experience and your other federal agency experiences and bringing them over to OPM?
0: I started out working on Capitol Hill. And at the time that I worked on Capitol Hill, all of the constituent letters came in and were manually responded to on electric typewriters. Now, that also was a time that copying machines got a lot cheaper. And all of a sudden, instead of writing your congressman, somebody was able to quickly write a whole committee of congressmen and their senators. And the volume of mail was skyrocketing. I was working for a U.S. senator. They saw that This isn't going to work. We can't hire more and more typists to get responses. So they were willing to experiment with a mainframe letter answering system as the first experiment uh, of doing this. And as soon as they brought that system in, I became the office guru of it uh, to the point that in a few weeks, even the vendor was coming to me and asking my advice of how to do things. Um, So I can say I've had my hand on modernizing the Congress, Later on, I went to the private sector and ended up at Xerox Corporation, and I was at Xerox when they invented the PC, Ethernet, the GUI interface, laser printing, all of that. And so I also can say I've had my hands on all of these technologies from day one, not as a programmer, but as a business user, what's the business value and impact of it. Later on in my career, after going back and forth to the federal government, I ended up at Microsoft Corporation, which was my longest job of my career for nine years. I was at Microsoft when they invented Azure, when they invented hosting Office 365 in the cloud. And Azure came out before any other cloud platform, even though they didn't necessarily dominate the market for that. So when you go back through my career, I've worked on PCs as long as they've been around. Mm -hmm. I've worked on networks and GUI interfaces as long as they've been around. And I've worked with the cloud as long as it's been around. And we're up to year 18 of the cloud. The cloud is no longer new. I don't accept people saying it's still new. We have to wait it out. 18 years is long enough to do that. Uh, Then throughout my career, I found, so that's the technology side. On the business side, There were many times earlier in my career where I was the first person to ever hold that job. For example, at Xerox Corporation, when they invented the PC, they realized they didn't have staff to be able to do it. And so they created a national PC uh, specialist, and there were eight of them. I was one of the eight that was hired. Other times in my career, I've been the first one to do a job. So now that technology is kind of leveled out, I'm no longer the first. I'm not the first CIO by a long (laughs) shot. But... I've always been willing to see how can we use technology to improve the delivery of citizen services. When I was at an earlier federal agency when Windows 95 was being released, and again, before that time for our younger audience, they may not realize it, but we ran something called DOS, Mm -hmm. which was just a line and a green blinking line waiting for you to type something to do it. There was no GUI interface. There was no prettiness to it. I've always been an early adopter. When we looked at Windows 95, I had it deployed nationwide for my agency the day it was released by Microsoft because I went with a preview version knowing that we would have the preview ready and that we would update it as soon as the release version went. So I've always been willing to be a leader and take a look at the technology and see is this something that we have to sit back and wait and let other people experiment with. And I think that's that's been a big help. And I'd say the other big key is I'm an information sponge. Um, <laughs> when I was younger, looking at the older federal, uh, the older IT professionals that I worked with, I saw that they were very set in their ways and they were very tied into you know, the IBM mainframe is the way that we've always done it, we're going to do that. I swore I would not do that. And I think my team gets a little bit tired of me coming in maybe once a week or every couple weeks, hey, have you seen this type of technology? And we should look at it. So I think we need to continually look for what's coming next and how can it help the government do a better job of dealing with citizen services. Mm-hmm. And there's one more key to this that didn't realize it at the time, but my dad my dad was a high school wrestling coach. And so I started wrestling when I was in elementary school. And I wrestled through elementary school all the way up through college, and then I came back from college and helped him coach for a few years. So about 20 years of wrestling experience. What I learned as a wrestler is that I thought it was the best preparation you could have for uh, the business world. You are out there by yourself. This isn't like a team sport where you can mess up and somebody may maybe not see you. You're out there one-on-one. And so it's your neck on the line. You have full accountability for it. But I was also part of a team. So I learned how to be an individual strength, but still, if the team didn't win, that wasn't good enough. Uh, So I actually seek for people like that, swimmers, runners, wrestlers, where you're part of a team, but when push comes to shove, you're out there by yourself. And uh, what I find is that gives me an incredible drive. Uh, I've had a lot of younger employees come up to me and say we don't know how you can keep going at the pace you're going. You know it's 4 o'clock and you've been going non-stop and we've watched you and you're still full of energy and I tie that all back to my wrestling background that that taught me how to do how to push my body mm-hmm. and how to just get the job done. But like I said the team needs to be successful for it to be there so mm-hmm. Anyone applying for jobs with me in the future, if you did, if you were an individual on a team sport, make sure you highlight that in your resume.
1: What are the IT priorities for the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, OPM? We'll explore these questions and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, our guest today is Guy Carballa, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. I want to switch gears a little bit because you mentioned earlier, Guy, that um, you're uh, pulling together an IT strategy for OPM that aligns with the OPM strategic plan. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about the strategy and what are the key priorities you have outlined in that strategy?
0: Uh, Definitely moving to the cloud is my top priority, I mean, outside of what we've already talked about on, you know, hiring the right staff and making sure that we have training and all that. Assuming that's all in place, uh, I believe the cloud is the best way for the federal government to provide the best services to our citizens, making sure that we're investing in our employees with that continuing training, realize that we can't just hire somebody and let it stagnate, that we want to give them a future with it. And it's really one of the things I'm most excited here that I didn't get to do before is that the tools have progressed since the last time I took an agency to a cloud, which was five years ago. Uh, Maria wrote, and I did that at the SBA. We were trusted by the senior leadership to do it because we said this is the way, but we didn't really have to show them a lot. Uh, Nowadays, and I didn't have the data to show it, we both knew that it was could to provide better service at either the same cost or approximately the same cost, but things that we couldn't do. Uh, now, today, we're actually in the middle of running tools to calculate the cost of moving every single system to the cloud. I didn't have that hard data before. I'm going to have it now. Um, and We've already worked out our plan on how we're going to migrate and what we're going to move. Uh, we've used what uh, the Federal CIO Council came out with, an application rationalization process. We've used that where basically you take each system and you put it in a grid of four things. One is nobody's using the system, so we're gonna turn it off. Mm -hmm. And there's always those, and and you don't wanna migrate those. There's ones that this is so complex or convoluted that we have to totally rewrite it, so it needs to stay on premise for now. And then there's ones where this can move to the cloud quickly uh, as infrastructure as a service. or And then the fourth one is we could switch it to uh, platform as a service. Mm -hmm. So we've already done that analysis. And what my team did, which was really great, is they put a level of effort estimate on it. So not only do I have that heat map, but for each system, I have how hard it is to do. So the ones that are very easy to move and have the biggest impact in the upper right quadrant. Those are the things we're gonna tackle first. But now, probably by the end of January, I'll have the financial data and be able to go back and show the leadership team. Here's why we're moving this application to cloud. Here's how much it will cost in the cloud. Because it's even today, and I mentioned earlier, 18 years, come on, the cloud's not new. (laughs) The costing of the cloud and consumption model is still something people are struggling with. And the fear of, you know, somebody's going to hit a switch and we're going to have a million-dollar bill overnight, that that story is still out there. So being able to show here's what it's actually going to cost and then the CapEx model of I'm not going to need to go buy a new data center every five years where I'm going to come and say I need $30 million dollars above and beyond my budget just to buy and keep everything like we have it. Um, I find CFOs love that. If a, if a CIO works closely with their CFO and says, look, instead of me coming to you and saying, I need to rebuy the data center every five years, and it's this massive increase, can I give you a steady line cost instead? And every CFO will say, give me that steady line cost mm-hmm. instead of that massive increase. So. Those are all parts uh, of doing it. I didn't mention it earlier. The CIO, to be successful, absolutely must work hand-in-hand with the financial team uh, because this is a change for them, too, and being able to explain these things to them is really a big help. In fact, one of the first applications I moved to the cloud was a CFO application. Congress has decided to give us a priority of building a new health benefits program for the U.S. postal workers with a very short time frame. So that is a very big priority for (laughs) us. Uh, We are working across organization to do that. And the rules are different for that. So the current federal employee health benefits system uh, has a different set of rules than what was mandated for the postal service. So we really have to build a whole new Oh, wow. System. The eligibility is different. The way it'll pay the, 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 um, the health programs that will be available to the postal workers are all going to be different. So, might, they might have thought it was just a quick modification of what we had, but it's really a, uh, a whole different system. So that, that's a huge priority. And then, obviously, with every administration. Uh, the priorities of the Biden administration on helping DEIA, we've we've built uh, the first dashboards for the federal government for DEIA. Uh, strong push for bringing in early career talent, uh, which is their way of talking about interns and mm-hmm. and and uh, people early in their career. We're we're doing all of those initiatives too to support support that effort. But, you know, stabilizing the infrastructure that I inherited, which was not stable, mm-hmm. and then moving us to the cloud and also supporting all these initiatives. Uh, something that that we did is we turned on enterprise dashboarding for everybody so that my experience in the past is you had have the haves and the have-nots. Some people could afford the BI tools and some didn't. Uh, I made it uniform so that everybody at OPM can create dashboards and it's growing like wildfire because we have a great amount of data uh, being, you know, the HR agency, the federal government, and we weren't able to display that in easy-to-use formats. Now we're headed that way. And I think both the, what's going to be available for citizens to see uh, on the OPM website and also internally in the federal government for various agencies we're going to make their data much easier for them to decide um, how long does it take a agency to hire a certain class of person, being able to compare that to, wait a minute, here's two agencies that do it in half the time. Uh, if they're smart, they'll call that, those two agencies and say, hey, this is taking us this long. How are you able to cut it in half? So. Not only the data, but being able to, to use the results of the data to change business practices is huge. So before
1: we leave the, the cloud effort, the, your cloud journey, I was wondering, maybe um, you can explain to us, how does a cloud platform reduce operational expenses and increase resiliency? And I know you kind of alluded to your plan, but are there any successes thus far in terms of moving applications and, and maybe give us a report card on
0: that? Yeah, one thing is uh, I'm, I'm not basing moving to the cloud just on cost. Okay. There are so many benefits that we get with the cloud that we aren't able to do now. Uh, one I just highlighted with our executives in the last week is when we store something to the cloud, it's automatically stored in multiple places so that if a server goes down in the cloud vendor side, we don't even know it because they already have two other copies of it, usually one in that same data center, mm-hmm. but in a total different Uh, server array, and then a third copy in a totally different data center in case that whole data center goes offline. We don't even see that, that that that's happening. For me to do that physically with my own data centers, the price would be outrageous. Uh, Disaster recovery and business continuity. Again, it's something, it's like an insurance policy. Everybody hates paying for it. And until you need it, then you realize that, with the cloud, we have that built in automatically, where on on-premise, I would have to spend tens of millions of dollars to have equipment sitting idle for something that may or may not happen. So just that uptime, that resiliency is critical. Uh, OPM, like a lot of federal agencies, has seasonal traffic, too. You know, we, we provide one of our systems, we provide to the federal federal government, is called USA Performance, so it's where Uh, A large number of federal agencies now are using our system to rate uh, the annual performance reviews of their employees. Well, those are all due in September, and then the next year one is due in October. It's a classic case of elasticity. We have a massive surge of traffic in those two months, and then it drops down tremendously. Today, on-premise data center, I have to buy enough equipment to hit that surge and then have it sit idle the rest of the year. With the cloud, we can have our cost increase and, and resources increase. And then when the traffic drops, the price will drop considerably. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those are a couple of the benefits. Uh, I think the cybersecurity protections, when you're in a major cloud, you're also bringing in the cybersecurity forces of that cloud vendor, which uh, is a great army to add to the federal workforce. So, you know, if something is going wrong, that's something. If you're just doing it yourself on premise, you don't have that cavalry to call, or, or that's that's already working on it because it's impacting their entire business. Yeah. So there's, you know, those are a number of reasons. Cost. I'm willing to pay more getting those extra benefits. Mm-hmm. If it comes close, that's good. But uh, again, part of the story. I'm not looking to save money with it. Ideally, you know, especially with that. Um, elasticity expansion model, mm-hmm. uh, I think over course of a year, we can save money, but that's not the driver.
1: I had a question around, while well, you're, well, you're uh, dealing with legacy systems and infrastructure, which you have to keep, you have to maintain, and the technical debt associated with that, I'm also wondering about, you know, getting to the vision of, of getting stuff off-prem. What are you doing to, how, how does this relate to enhancing IT governance across your enterprise?
0: IT governance is something that everybody wants to have, but then they hate it. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I had that speech with my boy. team. I said, if we lead any any message with a business customer that we're here to discuss IT governance and what we're going to do to you, you've already you've already lost it. Uh, it it has become a bad phrase because I mean, with the technology that's evolved over the last thirty years. There is so much that an individual in a office can do today that back in the mainframe days, they didn't come to work with a mainframe in their pocket. They, so uh, the CIO you know, was able to control it. IT governance is important. Uh, you know, I've I've stood up an investment review board. Uh, I've modernized our, our uh, IT procurement system. It used to be paper-based when I got there. And so when you might expect OMB and other organizations, they tell us how many how many dollars of, of uh, IT spend has the CIO approved. We would literally go through paper copies to calculate that. Now it's a push of a button and it's all automated. And the other thing is, like all federal agencies, to get something through procurement, it's not just the CIO that signs off on it. There's CFO office that certifies that money's available. There's a the program office itself that says, yes, it's in my budget, and I can afford it. Again, all that was paper, so we really couldn't tell where we were. Now, anyone that submits a request can see exactly, oh, my procurement, I was going to yell at Guy, but the procurement actually hasn't gotten to him yet because it's currently being reviewed by the CFO's office. And then they can call the CFO office and say, Yo, do you need more information? What do I need you to do to, to clarify this? So, again, my, my answer on IT governance is yes, we need to have it. Uh, under FATARA, the CIO is responsible for it, but what we need to do is provide tools and excessive communications on it and it should not be viewed as I'm taking something away from you as much as maybe I'm taking it away from you but here's why and the cybersecurity risk is so high that you're putting the agency in jeopardy or the cost model is, is so high. So. Well, I said, you don't, never want to lead a conversation with, I'm here I'm here because so of important? IT governance.
1: I was wondering, Guy, you've mentioned this a couple of times in our conversation. And I'd like to delve a little deeper. How are you working to provide an enhanced customer experience and establish sort of a CX mindset in your organization and in the culture of the agency as a whole? And to what extent are you using maybe user center design Um, principles to highlight some of the efforts in this area. And I know your website's a big one there, but uh, whatever you want to share with us in this.
0: Yeah, I actually gave a talk on this, and I really highlighted that there's two areas that we look at this. One one is what you just highlighted, and I'll get to that second. The second one is the user experience that we provide every day to our employees and our staff. And one thing that we saw the federal government do with COVID is we went from limited telework to Mm -hmm. massive telework, But we also treated initially and maybe even for a year or two as if this is a snowstorm, you go back to your office after a few days. So that meant we were asking our federal employees uh, that might be doing a legal review of a 400-page document. While you were in your office, you'd have two large monitors and you'd be able to see this. Go ahead and do it at home on your small laptop screen and track comments and track where you are because you're going to go back to the office tomorrow. Well, tomorrow didn't come for years. So one of the initiatives we did last year is we equipped every federal employee with the same office equipment at home that they have in the office if they're a hybrid or a remote worker so that they have all the same tools and the same capabilities. That, to me, that's, again, a customer experience change. Normally, we talk about websites and design. Uh, The other thing that we did is when I got to OPM, we had five different productivity tools in place with none of them being used across the enterprise. So you could IM or chat between two people in one office, but not even that whole office could be on that same platform or definitely across the agency. So one thing I saw with this hybrid world of work, we all needed to get on an enterprise platform so that we could communicate. And so, again, that was, going back to our earlier question, that was a culture change because Certain people loved some of those five products and didn't want to change, um, but I laid out the business reasons and the cost reasons for doing that. And now the whole agency is on one platform. Uh, in fact, where we have led a pilot with the rest of the federal government, we're able to interface from productivity user to productivity user in 28 other agencies. And being the federal HR agency, that means I can have an HR specialist in OPM start an online chat with somebody in NASA in the HR department. And then if they decide that this is too complex to chat, immediately hit a button and go into a video call. So again, to me, that's part of the user experience that we ignore when we only talk about user stories and and changing the way a web application looks. On that side, One of the things I did is I created a digital services team within OPM. Uh, I've worked with the federal digital services team and my other agencies. And again, while helpful, they work for somebody else. And they're there a short time and then they leave. What I saw in my model is I want to have them under the CIO's office and to be here permanently. Uh, And that goes back to part of what I talked about earlier by having those federal employees that have new uh, current uh, customer experience skills and cloud skills. Again, I partner them with the legacy team as part of our modernization effort. Uh, we're a big we're a big user of uh, of dev, DevOps and user stories. In fact, the the postal system that I mentioned to you, we have the entire agency mapping out user stories in a common tool so that we can see the impact on the CFO, the impact on our retirement systems, uh, the impact on our health insurance team, the impact on the CIO. And our our director's office loves it because they can open up that dashboard and see this office. This is 100% on, done on their user stories, but this office is only 10% done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a very visual feedback. and. We've had to do a lot of training because, uh, in this case, we're taking business users, not part of the IT team, Mm -hmm. and saying, here's how you map out what you do in your current job. And that's been very, very successful. And I have a much better idea as we build this new postal service system, what needs to be in the requirements versus the old-fashioned way of trying to go knock on people's doors and, So what do you do in your job today and jot it all down uh, to try to map out that that's a system requirement? So very important, we've laid out a whole journey map of somebody wants to become a federal employee to they go through the submittal of a job on USA Jobs, they go through federal interviews, they get hired by agency A. Later on in their career, they change to agency B. They get married, they change their health benefits, and eventually they retire. We've mapped out that whole journey map, and that's part of what's driving our, um, unfortunately, right now, each of those instances is treated as its own silo. Oh,
1: okay.
0: our, part of our user experience is we want to make that one common journey that you should always be able to see where you are in the process Real to, to, yeah, to deal with that.
1: How is OPM securing its IT systems and pursuing zero trust? We'll explore these topics and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
2: How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
1: Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan. Your host and our guest today is Guy Karbala, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. So data, you've mentioned data a couple of times in our conversation and you know, data is transforming society, business and the economy. I was wondering um, where are you with the OPM data strategy and perhaps you can give us some progress on that area.
0: Uh, yes, OPM decided to uh, create a chief data officer, which I really supported, and actually I helped hire. Uh, so we have a chief data officer now. Uh, interesting study of, of uh, government is wh- where does the chief data officer report? So we have found that there's about a three-three-three uh, break on it. Uh, about a third report to the CIO about a third report to the agency front office, the administrator, director, whatever the agency name is. Not necessarily right to that director, but one of the lieutenants there. Mm-hmm. And then a third report to the CFO or other offices. So there there doesn't seem to be a consistent form that everyone's went, aha, that's the right way to do it. So in our case, the chief data officer does not report to me, okay. but we partner very closely. In fact, I, I gave, I gave uh, him and his team uh, almost half of my all-hands meeting this week with my staff so that the entire federal IT force could hear from him on where they are on developing the chief data strategy. So, what I mentioned earlier, agency went first with the agency strategic plan. Mm-hmm. I went next with the IT strategic plan. And then the chief data officer said, okay, I'm going to use both of those to develop our data plan. So right now, one of those is public. The other two, we're working through our processes to get them public. But uh, we're all integrated, and that's very important. Uh, Privacy is a big part of that, too. We have a lot of privacy data that, uh, that we want to make sure is protected. So we're working closely with our chief privacy officer, too, on what type of data can we expose, that will still maintain privacy if somebody combine multiple data sets, it won't let them narrow it down to someone. So um, really active across all three areas. So, I, and the chief privacy officer does not report to me either. So again, we've had to build a coalition across the three of us to make sure that our organizations stay in alignment. And in my long career, one thing I've seen talking about the IT governance battle try to take data ownership away from somebody Mm. who's owned it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. What I've been successful in doing, because that's not successful, is you have to come up with a new enterprise data hub and let them still own their data environment, but get them to buy into sharing data with that. And then once you show them that, oh, by the way, by doing that, If somebody calls another part of the organization and updates their mailing address and they didn't call you, we can provide that that updated data back to you so that that citizen doesn't have to call my office first and then turn around and call your office to give you the same information. Mm -hmm. My experience is you can do that that way and show people that this is really better to go to a unified data model instead of having ownership of individual silos. Ordering them to do it or telling them, forcing them to do it, does not usually work.
1: I mean, we go from uh, data privacy, and, and my next question was around your efforts around cybersecurity and maybe you know uh, dealing with resiliency, building that redundancy, in which you talked about with with the migration to the cloud. But what are you doing in the area of cybersecurity? Is zero trust? How does that play into your your journey?
0: Uh, yes, luckily uh, uh, this is my second agency for zero trust uh, uh, because I'd already started it at SBA. Oh, okay. um, we, we, because of that effort, we went early to the Technology Modernization Fund mm-hmm. and put in a request to, uh, you know, because of the federal budget cycle. It would have been two years before I could have asked for uh, zero trust money, so I went to TMF instead. And uh, we were one of the few agencies that got early approval on that. I think there were three of us that got approval. We are well underway to implementing that now. Um, something that my, my CISO has done, which uh, I didn't have to encourage him, but he worked with Maria Rot and me at SBA, so he knows how we work. Uh, he's sharing everything with the federal community on here's where we are on our journey for any agencies that are behind us or haven't started yet. Uh, we will definitely share best practices, lessons learned, what were the roadblocks, uh, what we would do differently. Um, it you know zero trust I think absolutely with today's cyber attacks is the way we have to go to protect our our data the the old build a moat around your network and you'll block everybody there but once they're inside they can go anywhere uh, the hackers have proven that that is their favorite model that they can get in and go anywhere so uh, I'm excited about that like I said we're we're well on our way on the journey it is going to take uh, a couple years to do it fully, and we're able to do it in stages so that we can do that one one thing. And going back to user experience, what we did at SBA is we replaced the VPN with the uh, Zero Trust connection. And that meant that the end user went from having to click on about eight things to get started every day, we went down to two things. Put in your PIV card, type your PIN, and you're done. Um, so the users love that, because sometimes with the VPN client, they couldn't tell, did it connect or did it not connect? Uh, uh, from a cyber perspective, I, the CISO and I love it, because with a VPN, you have the option of a user could turn it off and still use their laptop. With Zero Trust, we don't allow them to turn it on. If they're going to log on to their laptop, it's always going to be connected through Zero Trust. So. We're able to do patching. We're able to collect performance data, all the things where if they're not logging in with the VPN, we, were, we weren't able to do. So that's the easy part of Zero Trust. Mm-hmm. Taking Joe and Sally and, and then deciding Joe's going to get this access to these three systems at this level and nothing else, and Sally can have access to these five systems at this level, that's a lot of legwork, and that's mm-hmm. going to take us longer. But I'm Pretty excited about that.
1: You know, you had talked about one of your challenges. One of the things you've done as an accomplishment is is the personnel. But I'm wondering if you could delve a little deeper into workforce development, recruitment, retention. What are you doing in this area? And more importantly, what are you doing to address maybe skills gaps in, in IT and attract the right people with the right skills?
0: Yeah, one thing happened the data is that I, I looked at the age of my average my my average age of my workforce and it was much higher than than comfortable uh, and a lot of people eligible for retirement and looking across the federal government there's a lot of agencies in that position so working with my deputy i said you know we need to bring in early career talent we need to really look at how can we get here but the other thing we saw is that and this happens in a lot of agencies over time we've had grade creep so a job that somebody might have been able to start out of out of uh, their college years at a GS-7 level, over time now that job's become a GS-13 or a 14 or a 15 level, and therefore someone that's an early career talent person is not going to have the ability to apply for it because they don't have the necessary background. So the first thing we did was we decided with every open position, we were going to see if we could put a career ladder in place and then replace instead of a GS-14 and saying the next person in the job is going to be a GS-14, can we make it a 7 9 or a nine, eleven, thirteen, 13 so that we can hire at a lower grade and give more people in the early part of their career an opportunity to join. So I had to fix that first because bringing bringing in early career talent and saying you're a GS-15 would not work. Once we fixed that, we went back and I said, okay, we need interns. Uh, And OPM runs the federal intern program. Uh, my deputy overachieved here. I was expecting him to bring in five or six interns. Uh, we put out the call, uh, and we'll talk about how we advertise. But we had over 250 great applications for interns. So because I had vacancies, they kept going. And then one day they came to me and said, Guy, we, we hit your goal of six interns. In fact, we're hiring 18, which was uh, almost uh, almost 10% of my workforce. So that now, hiring these interns, I now have career ladder positions that they, at the end of their internship and once they graduate, if they want to apply for a job at OPM, I now have a path for them to go. So at the, uh, uh, two of the interns got assigned to another office, so I ended up with 16, and I met with them at the end of their, well first, I met with my team at the beginning of it and said, look, I don't want any interns getting coffee. I, don't want, I want to know that every one of them is gonna walk out of this program with a really good experience. Uh, we put a number of them in a cyber team. We put a number of them on a cloud team. We put another number of them on development team. So at the end of their internship, and I, I met with them at the beginning, in the middle, and the end, I asked them uh, on an anonymous survey while we were online, said how many of you would consider working in the federal government after you've been here. And we got all but two said that they wow. definitely were considering a federal career and that they had learned a lot in this. And in fact, several of them asked me, can I keep working for you guys even though I'm going back to school, but I'm gonna have vacations and I can work weekends and hours. So. We we actually kept several of them are still working for us while they're still in school, because they enjoyed it so much.
1: That's a great my last question for you because I want to be mindful of your time is, what advice, guy, would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public service?
0: Uh, definitely, it, it. This is something that's near and dear to my heart. Both of both my parents were public school teachers their entire career. Uh, I have three sons. One is a public school elementary school teacher. One is a college. Uh, professor at a private university. The other one is a college public uh, school uh, soccer coach, head woman soccer coach. Um, My wife works for the nation's largest nonprofit for low-income housing. So you've got a family here that believes in a strong commitment to giving back to the public. Um, If you don't have that desire, um, a federal career can be bumpy. If things don't work all the way that you hoped that they would. Uh, I actually, earlier in my career, I worked at the only federal agency that's been closed in the last 30 years. Uh, so I was out of a job, Not nothing that I did, the agency went away. You don't necessarily have control of all that. Um, but if you see government not working the way you want it to be, we need you, we have space for you, there's room to make changes. Uh, I said, I have such a passion to wanting to improve the delivery of government services. That's what drives me every day. Uh, If you have that, it's a great career to have and it's a great learning experience. Uh, As I've moved these three agencies to the cloud, I definitely had executives come to me and go, but Guy, if you teach them the cloud skills, the private sector will hire them away and we'll lose them. And I said, good, that means we did it right. Uh, We can't stop that. if we keep them in jobs that nobody wants to hire them from, okay, so we don't have the turnover, but we're locked in the legacy past. So um, it's worth trying. Like I said, if someone's in the early career talent area, try an internship. We've added on um, USA Jobs now, There is you can look for internships, and you can look for internships that are remote, uh, that's something else that I've changed is I don't just hire in DC, I'm, I'm hiring my jobs all across the country unless there is an absolute need to be in a office, I'm hiring people remotely. So we've changed the way we work, I think, you know, that's a great way for uh, someone to try the government out and, um, I said, we need it, we need, I mean, I, I don't think anybody would say the federal government is operating perfectly today. Mm-hmm. So uh, anybody that wants to come in and fix it, uh, I have openings on my team. You can hit me on LinkedIn uh, or you know, USA Jobs is where you know, OPM is the hoster of that. That's where the vast majority, not every federal job's there, but something like 92% mm-hmm. of the federal jobs are advertised there. Uh, you can create a little uh, bot agent to look for jobs for you. And and uh, again, it's There's a reason I keep coming back to the federal government. This is my fourth (laughs) time back in my career because uh, I've enjoyed my private sector work, too. But that passion to improve citizen services keeps bringing me back to the federal government. Well,
1: Guy, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule today to join us. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country.
0: Well, thank you very much.
1: This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Guy Carvalho. Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, OPM. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government technology and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes or on your favorite podcast app and, as always, at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
2: How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yanyan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.